Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today we continue our look at pagan traditions of the holidays and we'll honor another one of our ministry elders as part of Anniversary Month here on Watchmen on the Wall. I have an exciting update to share today. Studio 50, our special project to raise the needed funds to update our recording equipment and software, currently stands at 72% of our goal. That means we're less than $14,000 away from fully funding our new studio. Please prayerfully consider giving a gift to the Studio 50 project today. You can give your gift by calling 1-800-652-1144. Or you can give online, swrc.com. That's swrc.com. My friends, you wouldn't dream of dabbling with idolatry, would you? You've never embraced witchcraft in the occult, have you? Surely the Easter Bunny, the Christmas tree, and the Black Cat of Halloween are just innocent ways of enjoying the holidays, aren't they? Not sure? Well, let's continue to discover the origins of the traditions to many of our most loved holidays. From the Radio Vault, here is Pastor Larry and author David Ingram. I used to pastor the Riverbend Baptist Church in Hickory Tree, Tennessee. I had 11 wonderful years there with the congregation. The church was not too far from WHCB Radio, which at that time was located on Weaver Pike in Bristol, Tennessee. Dr. Kenneth Hill would always let me know that his special guests at the radio station were available if I wanted to have them speak at church. David Ingram had a very distinctive voice and was a well-informed Bible teacher, and he came to our church and he could communicate with anyone. He brought the truth down to our level. I remember one Wednesday evening, he came to church. It was a snowy and cold evening. He really connected with all of us. He played guitar and sang for us before he opened the word of God. He indeed was a great servant of the Lord, humble in every way. How we all miss him. We're talking today about pagan traditions of the holidays. I've got to tell you this, that I'm concerned when I find churches celebrating Easter in, an, well, an ungodly sort of way. And you may have wondered, you may have asked the question, what does the Easter bunny have to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do Easter eggs have to do with the resurrection? Why are we celebrating both of those kinds of things at the same time? Well, the answer is there isn't any connection with it, and therefore we ought to separate some of these things. Now, listen, one of the first things that I greeted when, oh, I started doing research for this book, Kenneth Hill, I went to a church one day, it was in the spring of the year, about five or six years ago, and the pastor and the deacon board were all making plans for how they were going to hide Easter eggs on their church property where they're going to put these things for the little kitties when Sunday morning came around. And I, listen, I asked the question, wouldn't it be nice if there were one place in this community where paganism didn't have a toehold? And this was a Southern Baptist church. And I, uh, you know, wouldn't this be an ideal place where God could have a sanctuary where children could be protected 
from this kind of thing instead of this kind of thing being promoted by the Church of Jesus Christ. They looked at me as if I was from the planet Mars, and they thought I was crazy. Frankly, Kenneth, I, I think this is abominable that a church, a church, would promote this kind of thing because Easter bunnies, Easter eggs, even hot cross buns are things that ought to be separate from our Christian practices and traditions. And so that's why the book, frankly, I have a conviction about it, because I find that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was offended by and opposed to pagan practices in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, and I don't think he's changed at all. And if I'm going to serve him and serve him with all my heart, and if I'm going to claim that I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, then I shouldn't be doing those kinds of things deliberately that offend him. Well, I think that we have to be very careful that we're doing what is correct before God, what is truly unto him, not something that has been so disfigured in our worship before God. And paganism slips into us by means of tradition. If we depart from the text of Scripture, we find ourselves going into traditions. And what I've told folks that I've preached to for years is that there's absolutely nothing wrong with tradition if it's based upon, solely based upon God's Word. What happens is we have traditions that are based upon somebody's interpretation of a tradition that was based upon somebody's interpretation of a tradition that was based upon somebody's interpretation of God's Word. We take it down several levels, and we lose what God's Word had to say about things. And I think that we have to be very careful, and we lapse into paganism quite easily because that's the bent of our very depraved nature and our depraved heart. Paganism's rampant throughout biblical references, is it not? Don't we find paganism all over Scripture? In fact, we do. And we find that paganism had its origins at the Tower of Babel, and from there it spread all over the world, and it's just been a constant battle on the part of our Lord to squelch this kind of thing and to promote proper worship of himself. And yet, my, it's tough, because, you know, what we're finding is that paganism appeals to the flesh. We find among the works of the flesh such things as witchcraft and idolatry in... Galatians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. And so these things have an appeal somehow. There's something sensuous about them that makes us want to indulge in them. There is something about false religion, wherever it's found, that has an appeal to the flesh. There is something even about legalism when it becomes an extreme form that appeals to the flesh. And yet that's not where the Spirit of God wants us to be. He wants us to have a relationship with him. And in fact, what happens here in John chapter 24, we discover as Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, that God is seeking people who will worship him, not in idolatry, not in some kind of a pagan, false religion kind of thing, but will worship him in spirit and in truth. And that simply means that we will worship God in a relationship with his spirit and a relationship to his word. 
And that's everything that God is looking for. It's hard to find. And when we get involved in worshiping God in the flesh instead of the spirit, and we don't know any better, well, that's pretty ugly. That's pretty awful. But when we do it after we find out that it's wrong and continue to do it, that's even worse, isn't it? And so that's what I'm finding in a lot of cases today. You can point out the error of somebody's way, and they'll tell you, well, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to keep on doing whatever it is that I'm doing. And I get concerned about that kind of thing, don't you? Well, it's a very disconcerting thing to know that folks would prefer their traditions over the Word of God. I found it very interesting in studying the life of Saul, that's King Saul in the Old Testament, that, you know, he wasn't exactly exemplary in his lifestyle, but he turned to paganism as well, did he not? He sure did. There toward the end of his life, there he was going to a witch. Well, and in fact, the witchcraft was part of what developed at the Tower of Babel. By the way, witchcraft is running rampant today. And if you trace some things through the scriptures, you'll discover that witchcraft and idolatry and homosexuality, fertility rites, solstice worship, and all of these things come in one big package. You might say, well, why would the monarchy in Israel get involved in this kind of thing? But it isn't that the monarchy alone was involved. The fact that there was a witch at Endor, the fact that there was a witch within the land means that the people had sanctioned this kind of thing, had approved it, and so they were indulging in it and engaged in it. Because you trace it back to Joshua's day, Joshua failed to cleanse the land of this wickedness. And so consequently, it all just mushroomed and uh, over time, overtook the true worship of God. Not only that, but you have King Solomon with 700 wives and 300 concubines had married into these various kinds of religious systems. His wives took him down the primrose path into idolatry so that by the time we get to old King Ahaz who marries Jezebel who was rich in the worship of Ishtar by the way, that's another name for Easter. When this lady becomes the queen there in Israel, you had a perfect environment for all of this idolatrous kind of thing to just break loose, run rampant. And we see that by 722 B.C., the Lord took these idolatrous people and threw them out of their kingdom. In fact, uh, I don't think the people, the tribes, ceased to exist but the kingdom, the northern kingdom, the one that was engaged in the worship of the golden calves, well, that kingdom ceased to exist. And many of the people, maybe 70,000, 80,000 of them, were taken captive into Assyria as a punishment for the idolatry they were practicing. Then, another 120 years later, the southern kingdom falls. But what's interesting, Kenneth, these people were transmigrated, many of them, into a land flowing with idolatry of every sort, witchcraft, astrology, and necromancy, and all of this kind of thing. And by the time they came back, idolatry had ceased to be a problem in Israel. We don't read about that in the New Testament accounts. We don't read much about idolatry being a problem 
in the intertestamental period. We don't read much about idolatry being a problem between, uh, let's say, 536 B.C. and the birth of our Lord Jesus. There were plenty of other problems, but idolatry wasn't one of them. Now, am I saying that we are committing idolatry at Easter? Are we committing idolatry at Christmas time? Well, it may not be idolatry as such, but we're plugging into a system that God has opposed all through history. And when we, for example, hide our Easter eggs or our Ishtar eggs, we are embracing a religion that involves what is known in Scripture as the Queen of Heaven. This Queen of Heaven, by the way, has her picture taken, and you find that picture in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation. She's known as Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth, and yet we celebrate her, to some extent at least, when we get involved with Easter eggs, Easter bunnies, and all of that, because that's the origin of these various accoutrements of Easter. By the way, Kenneth, did you know that the first Easter egg came from heaven? Tell me about it. Well, what happens is that back in the legend, one fine sunny day, an egg of wondrous size comes out of heaven and lands in the Euphrates River, by the way, which flows through Babylon. And what happens is that some wondrous fishes in the Euphrates River push this egg up to the shore where some equally wondrous doves come along and hatch this egg. They get on this egg, they keep it warm, they move it around some, until one day something pops out of that Ishtar egg. And her name, of course, is Ishtar. Other accounts in secular history and in mythology call her Semiramis. Now, we sometimes call her Semiramis, but I think the better pronunciation would be Semiramis, and there are all kinds of, oh, ugly stories associated with this lady. And again, this lady that pops out of the Ishtar egg, that's where the Easter egg originated, this lady goes on to be the harlot of Revelation 17, but more than that, she becomes the forerunner of the Madonna, She's known in Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 19, she's known as the Queen of Heaven. But back in antiquity, thousands of years before Christ, she was pictured with her child, Tammuz, pictured with a halo around her head, a halo around his head. And she was called back then the Madonna, or the equivalent of what we would call the Madonna today. Now, wait a minute. Isn't there something wrong with that? When we go out and hide our Ishtar eggs, are we not perpetuating not only this legend, but are we paying homage to her in perhaps an indirect way, perhaps in ignorance? But when we know better, when we know what these origins are, and we continue to do them anyway, well, the Bible says whatever is not of the faith is sin. And that kind of thing is not of the faith, not related to our faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Father of our Lord Jesus. And so my question is, why do we continue to celebrate somebody else's holiday? Why do we continue to worship a false system or worship within a false system a moon 
goddess, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Why do we celebrate Easter? Why do we celebrate Ishtar? And that's really exactly the same thing, when in fact what we ought to be celebrating is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. I don't celebrate Easter Sunday. I celebrate Resurrection Sunday. And I want to make it clear that there ought to be a line of demarcation in our thinking that separates us from idolatrous kinds of things. And whether we're worshiping the Queen of Heaven, whether we're worshiping the Christmas tree or not, doesn't make any difference. It's the fact that we're plugged into a system that is associated with evil, that is associated with enmity against our God, and we ought not to do it. David, you're talking about folks who are Christian people who have been perhaps ignorantly brought into a system that is pagan. How has this worship that's sprung from paganism or Babylonian worship, if you will, how has that continued to this day? Why do we still have it around? Why wasn't it eradicated? What happened was that in the early centuries of the church, the church syncretized with some of these systems. The church, for example, adopted December 25th as the birth date of our Lord Jesus. Now, nobody knows the exact date that he was born, but the church found that there was a great deal of paganism associated with that date, and with good intentions. They tried to sanctify what was otherwise purely pagan. By the way, what happens at about that time of the year is called the Yule. So the pagans celebrated the Yule during that time, and the church said, well, let's adopt this date as the date of the birth of the Lord Jesus, and we'll make something good out of this. We'll take a sow's ear, if you will, and we'll make a silk purse out of it by attaching something holy and something good to it instead of what is pagan. Well, of course, what we find is that when we do that kind of thing, what happens invariably is that the bad overtakes the good instead of the other way around. It's very similar, Kenneth, to the idea that you don't catch good health, you catch disease. And it isn't the good health that you have that you can communicate to somebody else. It's their bad health that can communicate to you. The same thing is true of evil in any way. And in fact, evil is more likely to pollute and to corrupt that which is good than the other way around. That may seem a little contradictory to you, but it is absolutely true, and we can show that even in Scripture. So my idea of this is that what happened in antiquity is that the church tried to merge with some of these pagan holidays, tried to adopt some of their trappings, some of their accoutrements, and instead of the church sanctifying and influencing the pagan tradition, the pagan tradition sort of took over what was otherwise Christian, holy, and wholesome. And I think that probably would answer your question. Why don't you tell us what's going on now with the kinds of foes that we as Christians face in our attempt to be true to the Word of God? Kenneth, one of the things that troubles me is that it's weird to come across with this kind of book. It's kind of weird for us in our society to say that these things are wrong and we ought not to be involved in it. But nevertheless, we ought to raise up a standard as Christians and allow the world to see that we're different. 
that we're not doing the same old, same old. We ought to instead take this kind of idolatry, take the fertility things of Christmas, the greenery, the wreaths, the mistletoe, all of that kind of thing, the holly, the ivy. These things represent fertility symbols, and we ought to get rid of these things. We ought to clean them up. Not that we want to spoil your Christmas. We don't want to spoil your celebration of these things. But what we'd like to do is say we need to clean up our act and become a little bit more oriented toward the things of God rather than the things of idolatry and the wrong things about Christmas and Easter and Halloween. And so the battle keeps going on. We see that here in the final chapter, there's coming a day when a false prophet will come and establish an image for people to worship as the tribulation period enters its midpoint. Enforced state religion will require those who fail to fall down in obeisance to the image of this beast. They're going to meet a fate similar to what Daniel and his friends uh, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael faced in the third chapter of Daniel. Get the complete conversation on pagan traditions of the holidays on CD when you call 1-800-652-1144. We have David Ingram's book, Pagan Traditions of the Holidays, available for you today. This book explores the origins of Easter, Christmas, and Halloween. Order your copy when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. You can always order online. Just visit swrc.com. As we continue to celebrate 89 years of ministry, we want to honor our ministry elders. To help us do that, here is James Collins and his special guest, Eric Barger. This month is Anniversary Month here on the Watchman on the Wall. Southwest Radio Church began in April 1933 when Dr. E.F. Weber, pastor of a local church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, preached a prophetic message over local radio station KTOK. His radio program was his radio church, thus the name Southwest Radio Church. Now, 89 years later, we are still going strong making us the oldest continuing daily Christian broadcast in the world. This month, we're taking some time to honor our ministry elders, our heroes of the faith. Joining me to share some stories is one of my personal heroes in the faith, a longtime friend of this ministry and frequent guest, Eric Barger. Eric, thanks for taking some time to share some memories with us today. How did you come to be associated with SWRC? Somewhere, somehow, somebody heard me someplace and... I got invited on with Dr. Weber, not EF, I never met him, but with uh, his son, and I did some programs with them, and as time went on, I met Brother Hutchins, and you all published a couple of books that Dave Benoit and I wrote together, and so a long time, I'm going to guess 30-year relationship, and I was listening to the program way before that. It was just one of the programs that caught my eye because of the type ministry I'm in with, apologetics and Bible prophecy, and so... You had a lot of the guests on that I was interested in, some of my peers and people that I met along the way, either before or mostly after I began to listen to the program. Do you remember that first program that you were on? What was it like? The first few years of the ministry, 
I did a one seminar presentation that turned into two and then to three that dealt with entertainment and how our families and our culture have been affected by the entertainment world and whether the entertainment is just a reflection of the culture or whether it leads the culture into particular ideas, I can't say. I just know that that was our ministry and I'm sure that's what I talked about. You became friends over the years with Dr. Noah Hutchings, the former host of this program and the late former president of this ministry. Tell me a little about Noah. You said last time we spoke you had a great story you wanted to share about him. In Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, my back was out that week. I was one of the speakers of the conference, and I was laying on a nice back up in my room, and all of a sudden the fire alarms in the hotel went off. And I thought, I'm going to wait till I see a fire truck showing up before I try to run outside as bad as I was feeling. And I had to speak that evening, so I was trying to get myself ready to go. As it turns out, it was one of Noah's birthdays uh, there toward the end of his life, and he lived into his 90s. And the alarm went off because they put so many candles on his birthday cake. (laughs) (laughs) I got downstairs and asked the question, what happened? And somebody looked at me and went, you're not going to believe this, but... (laughs) The one single story, just besides the longtime friendship and camaraderie we had, Dr. Hutchins loved to play golf. Uh-huh. I liked to play golf, too. And he would always ask me if I was wearing my golf clubs when I was going to be in town, and both when we lived in Texas and also when we moved back to Washington State, where we are now. I would bring my clubs just almost specifically to be able to play with him, have a round with him after we recorded. And it was a hot, sultry summer night there in Oklahoma City, and We were just a twosome playing behind a foursome, which means you're going to be slowed down and have to wait just about every shot. And we're sitting there in the golf cart waiting on the group ahead of us. And I said, Brother Hutchins, how long have you been at Southwest Radio Church? He said, Brother Barger, I went to work in the mailroom April 1st, 1951. That says a lot that Mm -hmm. he went from working in the mailroom to become the president of the ministry and one of the key voices of the ministry. And I just stared at him, and if you knew Brother Hutchins, you knew that little wry smile he would get, and he was staring back at me. He was waiting on me to speak, but I was just taken back by the longevity of his life and his ministry, and the ministry of Southwest Radio, too, because I did know that it's the longest-running radio ministry in history. And he looked at me and told me, April 1st, 1951, I said, Noah, I was born the day before. And I sent him a card the next year, and he called me and said, how did you remember that I'd been there since, you know, I said, well, don't you remember you told me last year that you've been there since April 1st, 1951? I said, I'll always remember that date because I was born the day before. And I think I called him every year until he passed away or sent a card to him just to say congratulations on another year of ministry. Some of the best relationships I've had have been with Brother Hutchins and yourself and with Pastor Larry Spargimino and Bob Blaze and Marvin. So these are longtime friends, and it's always a pleasure to come on air and to be able to share some of the different topics that I deal with and talk about. Eric, I want you to know I've followed your ministry for years. I appreciate you and what you do for the Lord, and I also appreciate you being a frequent guest on the Watchman on the Wall over the years. Thanks for sharing some memories with me today. My pleasure to be here. I'm honored. Our featured resource today is the book, Pagan Traditions of the Holidays by David Ingram. In Pagan Traditions of the Holidays, David explores the origins of Easter, Christmas, and Halloween. Make sure you order copies for your family and for your church. 
Call today and order Pagan Traditions of the Holidays, 1-800-652-1144, or online swrc.com. Around Easter, a common question many people ask is, was Christ crucified on Good Friday? Noah Hutchings will answer this question on tomorrow's edition of Watchmen on the Wall. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and has been supported for 89 years by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com. Thank you.